we're up to our ass in classics today. This is Fascism Podcasts, and I'm Jackie. I'm Hope. And we're here to talk fashion in a conversational way, where we did some research, you know, we went down some wormholes, and we want to chit-chat about it. And you're just like, you know, overhearing, like, your two friends explain things poorly and not always remembering everything correctly, um, and also probably saying things wrong. It's like you see two really well-dressed people on a bus and you're like oh my god who are they and then you hear them talking they've clearly read some books they've clearly smoked some weed since reading those books but the ideas are flowing yeah and you're like i kind of get what they're saying and that's enough for us you know that's enough for us um also we are diy so just keep that in mind you know production value is low but our mind value is high so rate us five stars yeah but before we get started with today's topic Jackie, what's trending with for you? People in shitty relationships. That's what's trending. Damn, you're seeing it all around you, huh? That is what is trending, yeah. I, I mean, like, I'm close with one person that's in a really, really toxic relationship. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't say, like, like you're definitely not, for sure not. I mean, like, the people that I'm, like, seeing on a day-to-day don't have those. So I think the toxicity, like, really stands out more when I see it. Because I'm like... Well, that's the thing. It's like... I don't know. For a lot of your life, you think it's normal to be like fighting with a partner all the time. Or that you should be like not liking your partner Mm -hmm. or like having to take your partner places when you don't really want to take them places. Like as in like bring them to a party, not like give them a ride to the grocery store, right? Yeah, exactly. And just like make excuses for them at the same time, complain about them. And I'm just like, I'm like, you know... Being single is not that bad. Like, I don't understand what people are so afraid of being single. Um, I know it's a painful break. I, I get that. But I think there's just such stigma around being single. I was asking my friend, I was like, do you know one person that's not me that's single and, okay, like, happy with it? Like, fine with it? And she was like, couldn't think of anybody else. She's 25, mind mm. you. I think it, it gets better when you get older. Yeah. But... I just feel like it doesn't exist and it's not allowed to exist almost. Like, um, so that people are in toxic relationships because of it. Right. And it's like, yeah, they're scared to be single, but also like they feel like it's the wrong thing to do in a weird way where it's like, because it's a failure of the relationship. You're giving up on somebody or something. Right. Right. Or like you couldn't make it work, quote unquote. It's like, what, like you should be devoted to every person that you ever date date? or fuck. Yeah. It's just like, I, I just need to love them harder kind of mentality. And it's just like, they just need more love. And you're like, no, baby, they, they can fake. They're, they're grown up. People yeah. are grown up. Or like, we'll go to therapy together. And it's like, that's great. But I don't know. I'm just now thinking about it. Um, all the people that are in um, toxic relationships are in, not listeners? in therapy, not in therapy. <laughs> no, they're not listeners. They're not. But um, you said they are in therapy or no? No, no, they're currently not. And I think they're just avoiding like the inevitable because they're just, you know, whatever. To each their own. But it is a trending theme I'm seeing. And I'm just going to tell you guys right now, get out of that toxic relationship. Even if you're like, I don't really like this guy. You don't even have to have a reason to even leave a relationship. If you can't come up with one, you're just, you're just not feeling it. 
you ha- you have every right to leave. I just I just want everybody to know that you don't feel bad about it. Like just do it. It's an opt in scenario. Yeah, and I think anyways they have to have a reason to leave, and I'm like, yeah, actually you don't. And it has to be like a big reason, you know? Yeah, exactly. Anyways, it's just um, yeah, I'm I'm happily single, and I want all my friends to be happily single if they want to be happy. <laughs> You know, and not in a sad relationship. Mm-hmm. So I know it's cuffing time, but you guys, let's get let's get a grip. Anyways, what's trending for you, Hope? Well, unlike you, I didn't really have any like further epiphanies since yesterday. So I think still trending for me is being mystic adjacent and just co- sort of the sensation of feeling like I'm the least mystic person like or that like everyone believes in things and I'm and I don't or maybe I'm just like a contrarian. Can I stop you there? You're mm-hmm. always down though. You're always down for the mysticism. You're down to like get weird. Yeah. So it's in you. You just like you're not going to start it. You're not going to think about it unless someone presents it to you. Well, it's like, well, and I think the belief isn't really there for me in terms of like, you know, a lot of people have this way of reading life where they're like things happen for a reason or like, oh, yeah, you know, like. Brian's been in grad school to be a mental health counselor and they talk about meaning making and like it's like how we say place making in mm-hmm, urban design yeah. they have like meaning making. I literally thought that in my head yeah and and about how how to help people kind of like make sense of their trauma or fa- figure out the meaning of their trauma and we were like well right do you have to make meaning of trauma can it just be a thing that happened and and you know I'm around a lot of people who really like astrology. I famously only like astrology when it benefits me. Like if someone's like, <laughs> wow, Virgo is so pretty. And I'm like, yeah, me, yeah, I know it's in the stars. <laughs> but like, as soon as someone says anything that I don't like, I'm like, oh God, you know, you guys, you witches. You're like, no, that's not true. Yeah. You're yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I truly don't really like believe in it, believe in it. But do I want desperately to know what my boss's sign is? Yes. Like it's such a, there's a lot of labor I think that goes into like learning who people are. Exactly. You have to like observe them and like blah, blah, blah. And it's like really comforting to feel like you already know someone, but then it's like you don't. And that's why I think I get annoyed sometimes when I'm like, I feel like people are just trying to take a shortcut when they should be observing me. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) that's fair. That's, that's totally fair. I think It is an easier route, but it also helps you describe the person better and gives you the tools to describe the person. You'd be like, that's the reason you're like that. Then like you do this, you know, you're connecting the dots in that sense. And you might just putting somebody like, but it still helps you define what you're trying to say. And like also like to think about differences between people and like anyways. And then I was in Indiana for my grandpa's funeral. So I was around a lot like my really Christian family and just hearing people describe our family in this way of like it's because we're all bound together by God and stuff and just being like you know I'm not a part of that and like but you know I'm trying to like learn that people can just say things around you and even if you don't think it's true you don't have to say anything yeah you're not a president that's signing off on a paper saying that like you agree with them especially with religion right because no one's right right but not us. We don't know. Right. Yes. You know, that's... We, well, and it's like, I mean, I don't even believe in like truth, you know, as a concept, but I just have so much baggage. I'm realizing how much baggage I have around it. Oh, yeah. Me too. Yeah. And to those that don't, who are you? <laughs> who are you? They exist. Um. But anyway, that's all. Contemplating the 
reality of truth and meaning and religion. Yeah. And not being mystic about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anywho, should we jump into the topic? Let's jump into the topic. Is your mother worried? Would you like us to assign someone to worry your mother? Okay, so today we're talking about chromophobia, which literally means fear of color and maybe was coined or at least popularized by David Batchelor, who wrote a book called Chromophobia. And I think it kind of like came into at least TikTok world recently with this TikTok video from Egg McMuffin Official that was talking about how color was disappearing from our world. Did you see that? Do you think? I at least saw some kind of graph. Right. People were stitching her, so... It's likely that you saw like her or someone that was talking about it. But the video she posted referenced a study done by Science Museum Group Digital Lab. We're going to hit you with some quantitative data to start us off. And don't worry, after that, we're going to get poetic as as fuck about it. A little too heady. Question, though, before we get into it. How did you hear about chromophobia? The book? Yeah. I think from you. Okay. You know how I heard about it? How? One of the fuck boys that I was with was like, you would really like this book. Oh, really? Yeah. And I hate that. Pedro? Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I really like this game of match the book to your ex. (laughs) I wouldn't even consider a Pedro an ex, but yeah, yeah. He was like um, less than a month. He's on your wall. Yeah, he he fucked with me really quickly in my head, so. That earns you a Polaroid in Jackie's world. It does. (laughs) Now my other ex has my book. Anyways, go on. Oh, really? Okay. Jackie was like, let's read Chromophobia. We both got the book. We both started reading it. We both were like, nah. Yeah. It was just, it was a lot more flowery than I was anticipating. It was not straightforward whatsoever. Yeah, and a context of it to me, at least with the first chapter, it was vague enough so it couldn't be held accountable was what I was saying. Yeah. And I didn't like that because I'm like, clearly you're talking about white supremacy overlaid with color and the connection of two, but you're not explicitly saying that and you're making it hard for people to understand. So it kind of made me mad in that sense of, how lack like it wasn't accessible to educate on like how color is connected to white supremacy and yeah it's like I couldn't really pull a quote out that at least the first chapter because I didn't read any of the chapters because I quit after that I couldn't really pull out a quote being like you know it, I couldn't put it I, I don't use Twitter but like it, there wouldn't be a quote that could be Twitter opal mm-hmm. to seem interesting yeah I don't think it's meant to be tweeted it's not a book that's supposed to bring the hot takes but it is. I think chromophobia in its name is a hot fucking take. But I think because he's so he's an artist. He's an artist and a writer. So I think like the lens he's going through. I mean, I I, I think like I I see your point. I think like that. Yeah. Like I don't think that that can't be the case and might not be the case. But I, I think like he's, he he does stop at a point where he's like whiteness as a color is imposing. It's powerful. It makes you feel like you don't belong and he doesn't go the next step to say like colonizers you know so it is like it yeah it it does require people it almost feels like it's like an intermediary book that's supposed to be in between like someone else is supposed to read this book and take it a step further and say like use it as like an example whereas like I think when you're talking about color you have to be a little vague like you because white as a color doesn't just have one meaning and so to say like and in conclusion I I can see how someone writing about it would be like I'm not I'm not really able to make I mean yes especially if you're an artist because you have to take color theory right and color theory is focused on relativity Mm -hmm. and color is only relative to other colors right so there's just already juxtapositions of like whiteness 
in itself is so bright and excessive comparative to the landscape around it. And so, like, they're saying something. It's, like, scrubbed clean of of uh, of whatever colors around it. That's what I'm trying to say. There's a void of color, essentially. Whatever. I, I just, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just, like, to the point. I want to get, everybody needs to understand why chromophobia is a very important topic. It's I'm very passionate about it because I'm, like, more color is necessary, especially in, like, culture. It's a, a representation of ornateness. It's a re- representation of living, existing, and expression and and landscape and nature and there's color everywhere and i just like the the lack of it has been totally industrialized capitalism whatever i'm getting ahead of myself yeah i think we went into it hoping it would give us the words to describe a phenomenon we experience yeah it's so frustrating that the norm is so colorless yeah i do think you get more of that in the second and third chapters and some of the quotes that I'll give and I also listened to a podcast called okay cool art and they read the book and they had a super hard time with it they actually split the book in two and they were both just like talking about how the first chapter is the worst it's the whole book is very literary he's talking about Herman Melville Joseph Conrad and like also references the classics and so he's talking about color in this very like symbolic sense like what did red mean in this book what did white mean in this book oh everyone's afraid of this white milky fog very not like a black fog it's the white milky fog because they're white yeah what i'm saying is he's it's like this is like one step away from poetry basically like and so we went off we went we we skipped ahead well i think it does make sense to start with this it's like chromophobia is the book and in addition to this book we wanted to like introduce some scientific data i hate the word scientific why do you hate the word scientific data? I think it's like, I can imagine my dad, I can imagine bringing this topic up and being like, oh yeah, colors is appearing from the world and him being like, no, insert an example of something being colorful and me feeling like I need to like validate it with like numbers. Absolutely. Because men, that's very men. That's very like, yeah, they're like, I don't know. There's just always like numbers makes you smarter. Right. When you're just like, actually, no, this is, this is, this is fucked up that I have to explain this to you. Like, yes. Yeah. But so I think it is really interesting that someone decided that this was worth looking into. And so there's this TikTok video that was put out by Egg McMuffin Official, and it references a study done by Science Museum Group Digital Lab. They analyzed over 7,000 photos from this digital collection and analyzed 7,083 objects. These objects were part of like 20 different categories and the goal was to represent objects that we use in our daily lives so they were looking at and recording the color of all these different objects then putting them on a timeline to see how have color trends changed how has like literally the landscape of objects in our own homes that we're using every day what did those colors look like you know 100 years ago compared to today so spoiler alert the most notable trend was the rise in gray over time and a decline in brown and yellow And so this reflects material trends, like the use of wood maybe going down, representing like less brown. And then like you have the advent of plastic in the 60s. And then like in the 60s, you see a lot of saturated colors. So there's there's like things affecting it in that way. Wait, so plastic is coming out in the 60s. What are you saying? When is there a down, a decrease in brown and yellow? What time? Well, it says overall, oh, just like yeah. over time. Because I was going to say, there was a lot of brown in the 70s. A lot of brown in the 70s. Yeah. Um, but I would say now less brown. 
Right. Yeah. Less brown over time. And then there's like micro trends within it. So it's like over time, we're seeing more gray, less brown. But then there's also like little spikes of things like in the 60s, you have plastic. Like I imagine in the 20s when they came out with like synthetic dyes, you probably saw color go up in a way, but then down again, you know. Did you ever watch like what's that movie? Miss Robinson or whatever that movie? Mrs. Robinson? Yeah. Is that the movie title? Like about the gra- the graduate? The graduate, yeah. I did. Do you remember the scene where he's like, you got to get into plastics? No. There's this scene where he's just like, it's all, it's going to be huge. Huh. And he's trying to like sell the, the idea of like putting stock into. Oh, wow. Into plastics. This is, when was that movie made? In the 60s? I, I think so. I mean, Dennis Hoffman was a cutie back then. So I feel like it had to be the 60s. After that, it was no, <laughs> he was not as cute. That movie is so weird. I haven't watched it in so long. But yeah, I just remember them like running away at the wedding because I've seen that clip over and over again. And that's the one that's supposed to be like they accidentally filmed for like longer than they meant to and they like left it in. And so it was supposed to end with them like kissing. But instead you see them like parting and they're just like sitting there. And they're just looking away, looking out the window. And people are supposed to take what they are from it. And I was like, was this art back in the 60s? Yeah. Anyway, so like you can kind of imagine this trend when you think about things. Like one of the things people were talking about was architecture. Like fast food architecture used to be more colorful than it is now. Like all of these like McDonald's buildings now are very like sleek and modern. Like cars on the road apparently way fewer cars in the road are colorful. Tell like, me about it. I get I get it. Like I've had to order new parts for cars and it's like easier if it's white. But that's the point. Right. That's the point. Right. Everything's supposed to be easier. Yep. It's all streamlined. Like if you have color, then it couldn't be streamlined. Like that. that's why crocheting is so in embroidery because like yes you can get a machine to do embroidery but there's nothing like hand embroidery and crocheting is really spectacular because no machine can take that and it can yeah so when you see a crochet piece it's a hand done piece i don't know but it's colorful it has like character is what i'm saying and yeah of course it's like the reasons people don't the reasons people omit color from things are are often practical and that's the problem (laughs) Um, no i mean yeah But kind of. And I feel like this book has really given me some of the words to like validate that view. And bless his heart, David Batchelor, he didn't make it easy, but he did. He did send me away with like some ways to talk about it. And so, okay, let's talk about chromophobia, the book. The main thesis of the book is that Western in Western culture, color has often been treated as corrupting, foreign or superficial. And in the first chapter, he spends a lot of time talking about the color white, like the virtues that are associated with it, the fact that it was associated with minimalism, but like it was hasn't actually always been a part of minimalism. He talks about the 60s art and like how it did not prescribe to that type of minimalism. Yeah. But the main thing in the first chapter that he starts with is that he's invited to this party at this rich guy's house and he is like talking mad shit on this guy's house. Like, don't ever invite David Batchelor over because he will absolutely slam your aesthetic. I mean, it sounded like a boring aesthetic and I say I'm here for the tea. It, but it was so funny because you're reading, you forget that you're inside this home at some points. So you're like, oh, yeah, we're still like the first chapter is just about somebody's white ass home. And he's very clear that it was like some European dude. But he does like a blind item style. Exactly. He's like, I was I was at this art collector's house. He was an American living in a southern city in a northern state or something. I was like trying to like write it all down. I was like, <laughs> OK, I take the taxi. I'll get off at Fifth Street. Who does he know? Yeah. <laughs> um, he says, OK, talking about the house, he says, 
At first, inside looked endless, endless like an egg must look endless from the inside, endless because seamless, continuous, empty, and uninterrupted, or rather uninterruptible. There is a difference. Uninterrupted might mean overlooked, passed by, inconspicuous, insignificant. Uninterruptible passes by you, renders you inconspicuous and insignificant. The uninterruptible, endless emptiness of this house was impressive, elegant, and glamorous in a spare and reductive kind of way. But it was also assertive, emphatic, and ostentatious. This was assertive silence, emphatic blankness, the kind of ostentatious emptiness that only the very wealthy and the utterly sophisticated can afford. It was a strategic emptiness, but it was also accusatory. It's weird because it's like, there's like a gaudy wealth. Is that just out of style? Oh, yeah. And that's Italian. So it's Catholics. I mean, like, and that's the whole thing, at least Americans. Here we go again. Here, we, here I go. Americans aren't supposed to be Catholic, technically. I mean, JFK was our only Catholic president, and that was a big ass deal. We, we are a Protestant nation. Like, literally, the people that came here from England wanted to make it that that way. Yeah. So I think our values as Americans is not gaudiness because it's not the Protestant way. What Protestant is, is like... Sparse. Sparse and uh, austere. And old money has very much that attitude as well. Like, Yeah. And so I, it's like the way he talks about this house as being like imposing is really vivid to me where it's like it's a white that's like it's it is accusatory. It's like if you're too colorful to if you're dirty, if you're not supposed to be there, it's like like a whiteness that's like that obviously people have to clean it well yeah and it can't and like it's someone's full-time job right yeah. you know <laughs> yeah there's that there's that for sure <laughs> <laughs> it's accusatory of like you're not doing your chores i'm just saying like they have to you have to afford somebody to at least work on keeping this idea of clean yeah in like a very practical sense having that aesthetic does require wealth and i i feel like the spaces that are organized that way it's like there's not a lot of places you're allowed to be because there's always like a marble table or like a, you know, like a piano that you sh- you're not supposed to play or something. Okay. Architecture with this kind of influence is pro- is evoking a sense of I don't know intimidation. I guess that they know it's like totally the, the in- it's the intent is to show something. I don't know what am I trying to say. The intent is to show that you, you don't need a. Uh, lazy boy couches like what is that what is that I, and i i don't know if it's just like to show off or what exactly it's like untouchable it's like creating space between you and everyone else or like it's just like power i it, maybe it's a more a, a moral thing because like the whole thing about control is to be like morally superior and they're like i don't need comfy chairs <laughs> i don't need color because i'm better than you is what i assume but also like i was thinking about the jewish memorial museum in berlin and how it does a really good job of creating an experience and moving you through all these pieces that are supposed to be descriptive in learning about the holocaust but the architecture itself is supposed to make you feel kind of like chaotic but also like sterile and organized but also empty and these all remnants of this kind of idea of wealth to me which I think is kind interesting I don't know yeah and so he talks about how civilization started with ornamentation which is an idea that we've talked about before where it's like ornamentation requires time and labor and attention and it's basically the opposite of capitalism in that in that sense 
And in this book, he talks about color as being associated with like the primitive and that for some minimalism can represent this like sort of growth or progress. That's like a, yeah, a theme that he like brings throughout the whole thing where it's like, you're supposed to be moving towards minimalism. Color is like immature almost. And then like minimalism is supposed to be like nirvana or like you've achieved enlightenment. Yeah. It makes me so mad thinking about it. Just like all the colors that I don't see at work is just like, it's on my day to day basis. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it truly, I've like realized how much it affects me where I'm like, I can only be in the office for like six hours because I just have to go home and look at color. (laughs) I really noticed it when I went from living with my dad to living with my sister who had all her walls painted colors. And like, I was like, oh my God. Yeah. I felt better. Yeah. it's an. Or maybe it was because I was smoking a lot more weed. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe, but also, I mean... I don't know. There's a there's a familiarity with color. Why why is immaturity bad? Why is it's all about not having feelings? It's about not right feelings slow you down. Yeah, exactly. It's not about being joyous in the moment. It's not about celebration of whatever. It's about you. How dare you celebrate a fact? You should be calm and chill. Yeah. Okay. Right. Um, don't move. Yeah. In fact, right now we're in a yellow room, and according to my workshop by sherwin williams uh babies cry more in yellow rooms and couples are more likely to fight in yellow rooms interesting that um color theory like that is actually not been proven at all i think people just have said over time this is what yellow does and this is what orange does that seems like the kind of thing that you could actually do a scientific study on but i still think it's dumb and they shouldn't do it (laughs) yeah i do too it's like i would trust more like some old lore about color that's what i'm saying it's like yeah that baby's probably crying because they're in a fucking doctor's office with you yeah the babies are crying because they're just like i don't know they're crying because they hate science (laughs) they wish you'd stop yeah they want to go back home to their mom's tit um, they're tired, but yeah, yellow and red, right? That's McDonald's. Right. It makes you hungry. But so he also talks about Herman Melville and Joseph Conrad. And for both of these guys, quote, there's an instability in the apparent uniformity of white behind virtue lacks terror behind purity, annihilation or death, not death in the sense of a life ended, but a glimpse of death in life, the annihilation of every cherished belief and system, every hope and desire, every known point of orientation, every illusion, For both writers, one of the most terrible instances of whiteness is a still, silent, milk-white fog, which is more blinding than the night. And for both, in the face of such whiteness, color appears intolerably, almost insultingly superficial. So a lot of talking about white is like this destabilizing force, an agent of confusion. I don't know. They just don't like white. And he says, for Melville, the truth of color is merely cosmetic. It contains subtle deceits. It is not actually inherent in substances. It is only laid on from without. Do you know anything about colonialism, like how British colonialized versus the French colonialized? Like there are different styles of colonization? Yeah. Not really. It's, it is interesting on this, like, this kind of idea of what we're talking about now of it being destabilizing because each intention was to destabilize, yeah. especially Britain. Britain would like tell tribe members that they need it was like oh i wouldn't even call it tribe that's already a colonialist term but they would tell people things within the group to break up the group mm, who would do that the french or the british the british and then france was trying to make them french like i mean that's like the whole thing like they're like you're gonna learn french you're gonna become a french person yeah um so there's different way of pushing 
whiteness, essentially. I don't know. Whiteness overall is just destabilizing, period. <laughs> but it's just interesting. It's different in the sense that how we destabilize. Yeah. So as he goes into the second chapter, he says, if color is unimportant, why is it so important to exclude it so forcefully? If color doesn't matter, why does its abolition matter so much? And this for me, I think is how I feel about fashion now as we've researched it more and more is that like people will tell you again and again, fashion doesn't matter. Why can't we just not care about what we wear? And it's like, if that if fashion doesn't matter, then like why have governments mandated hairstyles like why have armies tried to steal fashion industries when they've been like occupying a city like World War II? You're being very niche descriptive. When they've been occupying a city called Paris. When, ever heard of it? <laughs> well, okay, then why did the Germans try to steal Paris's fashion industry? Why did, was there a magazine in the 80s that why was teaching is there, women how to dress for work? Why is there a push for the suit? I mean, why why was there barbarian versus culture? If clothes don't matter, why doesn't why don't news anchors have underwear on their heads? Yeah, if clothes doesn't matter, why do I feel weird when I show, show off my shoulders? Right. Yeah, if clothes don't matter, why do I love them so much? <laughs> <laughs> and so, okay, he says of this dichotomy that, you know, we hate a binary, but this one's kind of kind of useful. Yeah. He talks about color as either dangerous and corrupting or color as superficial. So Plato has this idea of of truth as being like... Ever heard of them? Yeah, we're, in, we're getting into the classics, <laughs> folks. Plato has this idea of truth as being a visible form blanched of all its color, as if color is the thing on top of the form that's masking it, changing it, making it dishonest. Like Plato has this idea of like the body is truth, like there being an inherent truth to the body. And so you can kind of trace back some of our ideas back to that of like makeup as being deceitful of, of like, you know, that's just like the, the, the main example. The but main corsets example. too, like clothes. Right. Bras. Right. And our tits don't hang low. Like as that as being like a deceit as if our body is what's true. It's we're not saying that it's not. Uh, it is the truth because it's not because it's like you're revealing a lot through like you're revealing of society's uh, asks of you by wearing makeup, by wearing the corset. Like, right. There's that's the truth. That is the truth and what society views beauty. Well, and I feel like it relates back to also like the body politic of like there being a thought that like people have to live with their genetics, almost like that people can't alter their bodies to reflect the gender that they are yeah. or that they, or that like, because I'm born a woman in a woman's body that like, I have to live the life of a, of a woman just because that's like what my genetics said yeah. or something. It's like, I think the view as of the body as truth can actually be like, it's like really inherent and also can be like very dangerous, but it's just like yes. very much what we believe as a society. The truth can be, people's version of the truth is skewed. Well, and like, it's like Donna Haraway. I feel like her idea of like the cyborg, it, that's like an escape of the body politic because it's like, we can be aliens if we want. We can be robots if we want. We can change our body with plastic surgery. Like we, we are, we can be agents over our own beings essentially. Yeah. But, um, he says chromophobia manifests itself in the many and various attempts to purge color from culture, to devalue color, to diminish its significance, to deny its complexity. More specifically, this purging of color is usually accomplished in one of two ways. 
In the first, color is made out to be the property of some foreign body, usually the feminine, the oriental, the primitive, the infantile, the vulgar, the queer, or the pathological. In the second, color is relegated to the realm of the superficial, the supplementary, the inessential, or the cosmetic. In one, color is regarded as alien and therefore dangerous. In the other, it is perceived as merely as a secondary quality of experience and thus unworthy of serious consideration. Color is dangerous or it's trivial or it's both. Yeah, it's dangerous or trivial is definitely how I feel uh, with fashion. It's dangerous because it's all about control. It can be seen as dangerous because... It can be seen as dangerous as in slutty, dangerous as in... in... Yeah, like ha- on drugs, having too much fun, like the 60s color. Partiers, yeah. yeah. Like too short means she's asking for it because like... You only want to fuck if you wear short shorts. Like, just like it's that scene is dangerous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or behavior. Cr- yeah. Um, dressing a certain way. Um, and But at the same time, they're like, oh, you're into fashion. Only women, women and gays and theys only give a shit about fashion. Even as a woman, when I tell people I'm into fashion, they're baffled. Baffled. Because it's like no one says that. No one says that. Most people don't. Like, they're like, ugh, I hate the fashion. And I'm like, you actually don't hate fashion. You don't. Because you're wearing clothes. It also like relates to the way we view art. And he talks about this guy named Charles Blanc, who was a critic, color theorist. And at one point he was the director of the arts in the 1848 socialist government government in France. And so he identified color with a feminine in art. He asserted the need to subordinate color to the masculine discipline of design or drawing. He exhibited a reaction typical of phobics, a massive overvaluation of the power of that which he feared. And he said nothing particularly original sick burn for blanc color could not simply be ignored or dismissed it was always there it had to be contained and subordinated like a woman color for him signifies the mythical savage state out of which civilization the nobility of the human spirit slowly heroically has lifted itself basically like he was in charge of like he was the director of arts for in 1848 in France. So he was like directing curriculum and like guiding the way people thought about art. And for him, color was placed like below everything else. Charles Blanc. Like for him, color was primitive. His whole thing was that you shouldn't rely on color in art. With regard to painting, he said that while color is essential, its place is delegated behind the formal characteristics of composition, which are like line and then chio oscuro, which is like the Italian word for light, dark, or like tonal contrast and drawing so like does that make sense yeah he's like it's all about line and perspective um, yeah versus before it is color it's like composition is what makes it color like color meaningful i guess because like it sounds like he's into realism or something sounds like a realist boy i don't know but at the same time i don't know why why is he so upset about color what's why is he mad (laughs) okay it like goes all the way back to aristotle Dude, we're up to our ass in classics today. We're not usually, just so you know, for just know. tuning in. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm into it now because I want to know like the I know. roots of some of our, like some of these ideas we have as a society. It's like we think they're just given, but they're literally like because Plato said it a thousand yeah. years ago, thousands of years ago. But so Aristotle also get, gets in the mix. And for him, the repository of thought in art was the line. 
the rest was ornament. In his poetics, he wrote, a random distribution of the most attractive colors would, would never yield as much pleasure as definite image without color. Yeah, sounds like a realist boy. It is from here we get this hierarchy within painting that goes invention, design, tonality, and then color. I just, wait, was he during the Baroque period? What? No. Aristotle was like. No, this is Aristotle. Okay. I thought those were still on Charles. What's no, his face? no, Charles Blanc. Um, Aristotle Jackie is like before Jesus. <laughs> Everybody knows that. <laughs> I'm like, actually, I don't. Is he? Is it? It was BC, I think. Oh, my God. Isn't that but how weird? many years? Isn't that weird that Plato was before Jesus? By the time Jesus got there, he was like, color, am I right? <laughs> he was like, more the merrier, Catholics. Look at, we're we're going to invent this together. I want to have abs, and I want to be a hot twink on that cross. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm thinking like lob. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so this reminded me also, we're connecting the dots, of Susan Sontag's essay on style, which challenges the idea that there's a such a thing as style versus substance that like there's a meat of the thing that is the substance the words like the whatever and that's like the, what's real and that style is this like superfluous addition when she argues like, style is part of the thing like style is part of the message of an artist's style a writer's style like that is part of their voice like that is carrying the meaning that is just as meaningful as the quote-unquote substance so she she challenges that binary and so I think what what is the binary again hers yeah style versus substance and she's saying it's all in one yeah she and, says it's unity it's all connected baby yeah and then like this idea of like the line versus color I don't know that like you'd argue that they're the same thing but I think it's just like another why are we breaking them apart yeah they're together there's lines within color because there's boundaries there you go yeah. It's Look like, at me. <laughs> yeah, honestly. <laughs> and I do like, I'm not going to lie. I am pro boundaries. <laughs> I am pro emotional boundaries, physical boundaries. Boundaries are my my boy. Right, right, right. Uh, line, line color boundaries. <laughs> yeah, those can sm- smerge. Yeah. So David Batchelor writes, since Aristotle's time, the discrimination against color has taken a number of forms, some technical, some moral, some racial, some sexual, and some social. As John Gage notes in his vast historical survey of color theory, color has regularly been linked with other better documented sexual and racial phobias. As far back as Pliny, it was placed at the wrong end of the opposition between the Occidental and the Oriental, the, the Attic and the Asian in a belief that the rational traditions of Western culture were under threat from insidious non-Western sensuality. In later times, the academics of the West continued and consolidated this opposition. So, okay, so color is either dangerous or it is trivial. And color as dangerous is seen in depictions of drugs. So think 1960s, the fall from grace that is drugs is often represented in a way that is not unlike the descent into color described by Blanc sensuous intoxicating unstable impermanent loss of control loss of focus loss of self so you know like psychedelic movies in the 60s where like they're on drugs they're seeing lots of colors it's very like you've gone to like the wild side yeah it's about merging like patterns that shouldn't exist with each other it's about exploring new shapes new like feelings yeah presenting things that are like not so shiny and plastic, but like lively and, and almost scary because it's so lively. 
um, and interesting and different. It's it's a challenge to what we know as a society now because it had been so pushed against to create the society that we live in now. And it's such a juxtaposition when, yeah, like the 60s are just the colors. I mean, yeah, I can't help but bring everything back to work because it's just like, even when I bring color into work, I feel like I'm the bad girl. Like when you wear color? Yeah. Yeah. I'm like the fun girl. Yeah. And like, we'll talk more on professional wear and how that discourages color. But he, David Bachelor also talks about like the Wizard of Oz as, you know, being a movie in Technicolor, but that the beginning, it starts with Dorothy in Kansas and she it's black and white and it's like her life, yada, yada. And then she goes into the colorful world and there's a really scared lion. There's like a witch trying to get her, like all of these kooky bad things happen. Um, you know, even though she meets some friends along the way. But then she like goes back to Kansas and it's like back to her safe, traditional life, which is in black and white. Yeah, it's boring. I mean, this all it all connects to like what people I mean, what we're supposed to think is purity. And I mean, that's why like old wealthy people are like, love the row. (laughs) (laughs) It's all about minimalistic. I mean, whatever. It's just so crazy because it's like to say color is corrupting feels so, like such a bold statement or to say color is associated with like the perverse or the... I mean, just but what kind is. of pull up your ass do you have to have to have such a hardcore opinion like that? The, you know what? Who? What's this guy's name? Or Oh, like Charles Blanc. Yeah. Or well, just then, like anybody. I'm, they're just like so mad at color. And so I think that just like goes to show how powerful it is where it's like, yeah, because it represents people having feelings, people expressing, people exploring. At one point, I can't remember who in this goddamn book, someone says that like nature paints with like a whore's paintbrush or something. It was something to be like nature paints like a floozy or something like that. Where it's She sure does. Where it's like how about how nature is so colorful and it's like, yeah, and like that's what we're trying to get away from. That's what people are trying to get oh, away from with minimalism. Absolutely. It's like order, control. It's always about control. Always, I mean like... Any, if you take any white supremacy class that's a t- teaching you about how to, d- to dismantle it, not like a white, but <laughs> yeah. every, every class is actually white supremacy when you really think about it. But anyways, when you learn about dismantling white supremacy or like interrupting racism in some capacity, they the 101 is understanding everything we interact with. It's about control. Mm, and, and black people have to ap- absolutely deal with the consequences of that because they have to suppress their culture, their hair, their like body. There's right. just so many things of action of suppression. Yeah. And I mean, that shows up a lot in the way we design cities. You know, like it's all about controlling people, like where they can be, when they can be there. And Le Cabousier comes up which is someone you know about. Yeah, I went in a rabbit hole and we didn't, we definitely talked about him on the podcast about how he kind of sucks and he hates ornateness as we call it, aka just, you know, decoration, kitsch. He hates kitsch. God, he hates kitsch. He also hates crosses. Some weirdly, he thinks they're savage. I think he's obviously not Catholic. He's just like those goddamn Catholics and their crosses. And honestly, a cross can be sick as fuck. A cross necklace, I'm like, damn, you're going for it. Anyways. I know, I know. It, it it does have like very powerful symbolism. I'm like, I'm into, I don't know. I like when people wear cross necklaces. Uh, I judge them a little bit. But I also think that's a sick look. Anyways, 
He hated crosses. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, okay, like, I guess he's known for a lack of color in his work. He's an architect, right? Yeah. Yeah, he's an architect that... Kind of like city planner. That he wrote a book that was, like, really impactful, just talking mad shit about anything with color or ritual or culture. Right, yeah, it, in his evangelical repelle yeah, de Yeah, evangelical is the right word for that. But apparently, like, he used to use a lot of color, and then something happened that says the architect He was- hit his fucking head or something. I don't actually know if that's true, but I'm just like, why else would you think that? Why would you suddenly have a distinct... Do you think some girl broke his heart, and she was, like, a very colorful being, and then he was like, I hate colors. Oh, wow, maybe. Maybe he did drugs, and it, like... Oh, it does says the architect was done with drugs. But maybe, <sighs> maybe that... But maybe they mean color. I could never tell with David. He was never done with drugs, dude. He was just doing... What's the kind of drug they used to smoke in a ball? Opium. So he was probably... He was definitely doing opium. A hundred... I don't know a hundred percent. But like most of the architects during his time were definitely like opioid heads. And they all kind of had an awful style. They had a very kind of like like concrete aesthetic. Well, basically like he's done with drugs or color. We don't know. But he had been off them since at least 1920. The Great War had seen to that. I just want to... Yeah. I don't know his facts. I don't know him, you know? Yeah, in their place, order, reason, purity, truth, architecture, whitewash. And so he writes this book, The Evangelical Repel de Lord, a tirade against the flourish, the strain, the distracting din of color and ornaments. And is in his campaign for a world shaped by the new spirit and a new architecture, Le Cabousier aligned himself with the earlier but equally evangelical Adolf Luce. We have gone beyond ornament. We have achieved plain, undecorated simplicity. Behold, the time is at hand. Fulfillment awaits us. Soon the streets of the city will shine like white walls, like Zion, the holy city, heaven's capital. The Dude, fulfillment will be ours. You can't be with the name Adolf and be saying shit like that. Yeah, luckily the name Adolf hadn't been like tainted for him yet. I was thinking that actually while I was reading this. I was like, I don't think anyone will be named Adolf for the rest of the history of the world. No, but there was a funny, like, my one of my favorite shows called Happy Endings, where she goes on this date and has a really great date with this guy, and he's like, I'll pay for it, and then he, he's like, I'm going to go to the bathroom, and she gets the car back, and she wanted to see how much it cost, and then she realized his last name was Hitler, and she was, like, really contemplating if she could date him, and she's, like, using cursive in her name, like, she was like, Jane Hitler. Oh <laughs> Dude, can I tell you something really embarrassing? Okay. Oh, God. I decided I was going to get rid of 10 things every day in February. Brian was like, are you sure? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to do it. And he's like, okay, don't throw any of my stuff away, please. And I was like, I was like, no, it's going to be so easy. Jan- January 2 rolls around. I'm just like testing pens to see. <laughs> Which one's going to go? Hurry, please don't work. Please don't work. <laughs> and I was just writing in my name in cursive a million times in my notebook. And then my boss and I were like sketching through this thing the other day and we I always just have my notebook and we'll take turns drawing it and she opens it up to a page and it's just me with my name (laughs) there is that is so embarrassing (laughs) truly (laughs) you're just like I don't know maybe I'll become famous I gotta gotta keep up with that signature it was just first name no cap so I feel like it it had to have been at least obviously not an autograph (laughs) 
but oh my god you're practicing for something at least but imagine like the funny part about this show too was like he found the book and he was like oh my god you wrote my last name like they got in two days oh how humiliating it's yeah very embarrassing um this quote is like just so bonkers crazy we have gone beyond ornament we have achieved plain undecorated simplicity like i want to write that i want to like make art with that or like put that on a shirt or something but just like you know ironically but no one will get it <laughs> that's the whole point that's what you do stuff people don't get it and you they're out of the group and so it makes us cooler Ugh, you're so right um, <laughs> <laughs> well and so that was like caboussier so he he again it's this person who's all about order and fucking hates color so if one group of stories typically involves a descent into an existing but hidden realm of color, this other group of stories often involves imposition of an artificial or illusory layer of color upon a monochromatic world. That is to say, in one group, color lies beneath the surface. In the other group, it is laid over the surface. That feeds back to it laying over the surface being seen as shallow, essentially, yeah. and something under the surface as it being scary and hidden away. And it's like, it's something in us something in us lies beneath the surface that color brings out. Yeah. He talks about how like the association of color with femininity goes back further than the 18th and 19th centuries, as far back as antiquity. A chapter of Jacqueline Lichtenstein's The Eloquence of Color is called On Platonic Cosmetics, which is like Plato platonic. In it, she suggests that the platonic opposition between philosophy and rhetoric was recast in Aristotle aesthetics as an opposition between line and color. Okay, that's like literally exactly what Say we just again. said. Say that again. That was hard for me to follow. Okay, Jacqueline Lichtenstein. Okay. She writes this book called The Eloquence of Color. Yeah, got it. And in, the, in it, there's this chapter called On Platonic Cosmetics. And in it, she suggests that Plato's opposition between philosophy and rhetoric was recast by Aristotle aesthetically is the opposition between line and color and i feel like okay so, oh okay so in with plato we get the dichotomy between philosophy and rhetoric which is similar to susan sontag's style versus substance for aristotle it's line versus color so for plato the medium for his image of rhetoric was the dangerous trivia of cosmetics for plato cosmetics are a fraudulent baseborn slavish name God, uh, why it tricks us with padding and makeup and polish and clothes so that people carry around beauty not their own to the neglect of the beauty uh, and and you got it <laughs> so that people carry around beauty not their own to the neglect of the beauty properly theirs through gymnastics vulgar deceitful lazy and dishonest cosmetics perform their seductions while the nobility of true beauty is found in the rigors of physical and moral discipline oh my god i feel like a somebody like has said that to me it's just funny that there were fuck boys annoying men white men Saying back. things like, oh, girls like lie when they wear push-up bras. It, or why, how many times have I heard it's lying when you wear makeup? Yeah. Like how many times? And it's just funny that like you go back, like I don't know when fucking Aristotle and Plato existed, but when you go back really far and you're still hearing that fuckboyness, it's just, you yeah, can't get away like, from get it. get in the gym. Literally, he's like saying go in the gym and it's so similar to in, in the corset episode, you're talking about how like there's this idea of the corset as like an object that's counter to feminism, but what the corset has been replaced by is a pressure to achieve the perfect body through diet exercise cool sculpting 
whatever. Physically changing your body versus manipulating it with tools. Because like, that's the real truth. So, but it's never actually releasing you as, it's all, see, it's just so funny how much control over women it is even about. Like philosophy is still about, how is it still about control over women? It's so insane to me. Um, I thought y'all were talking about better and bigger things, but how is it still about us? You guys are obsessed. You literally stop calling. Yeah, like chill. I just can't handle it. Yeah, it's like the corset we're seen as like getting rid of it as a feminist act, but actually it's replacing it with a much, I think, dangerous mm-hmm. tangent that you have to just look naturally beautiful. Mm-hmm. And if we can see that you're wearing a corset, that means you are not. So you're still not free from the set just because the corset's gone. Mm-hmm. We still live in a reality where body expectations exist and it's they think that's the truth and the truth is what we're trying to get to. And that's just fucked up on so many ways yeah it's just weird that like there's such a blanket acceptance of that idea in our culture where it's like your body has to look this way and if you try to have tools to manipulate it it's you can't win i know you just can't win yeah plato set us up to fail truly they were always they were always mad at us they were always mad at women's bodies for not I don't know. They were fucking little boys. I know that. At least that's what I heard. I don't know. Yeah. Before we get talking about social media stuff, I want to mention Rosalind Galt, who wrote about like a lot of the same things that David Batchelor did. I really want to read her book. I bet it's really good. It's called Pretty Film and the Decorative Image. And it's about how like film culture often rejects visually rich images, treating simplicity, austerity, or even ugliness as the more provocative, political, and truly cinematic choice. So she talks about Plato, the favoring of word over image. She also talks about Charles Blanc and this like bias against feminine cosmetics, oriental effemacy, and primitive ornament. So yeah, it's about film. I just wanted to shout that out. What is she saying though? Like, So like ugliness in film is considered like highbrow. Just like a beautiful image in film is like thought of as like too simple or like cinema may challenge traditional ideas of art, but its opposition to the decorative represents a longstanding Western aesthetic bias against feminine, like feminine shit. Yeah, I mean, (sighs) so many things that I get mad about. Maybe because I think too hard. And this is why I think too hard because this goddamn podcast, because I'm like, when people say things, I'm like, actually, what you really are saying, because you don't know what the deep root of this, like white men think they can tell me what film is all the time. Mm -hmm. It's a constant theme within my life. Mm -hmm. Like this film is good. And this growing up, like them always telling me what the good film is because they always knew Mm -hmm. Um, every single one of my boyfriends. And whatever they like, whatever men like, is what's good and they're like well that's what rotten tomato says is good and i'm like yeah and it was it's probably been mostly white guys for like most of its existence yeah i mean like i don't know like a big example recently we were we've been talking about this i've talked about it too, too many times so i'm kind of over talking about it but the island of banshees or and i'm not saying that right it's like banshees of something actually but banshees of sharon something like that whatever you guys know what i'm talking about it's a, it's a movie that just came out it's, it's about like scotland or irish i don't care you're y'all yelling at me i don't care and it's about two guys that have a falling out essentially just because this one guy's over it and then he starts cutting he's like the one guy that's over it it's just like if you keep talking to me i'm gonna cut off spoiler alert please don't go see that movie i'm gonna start cutting off my fingers so is that in the preview it is in the preview but like that's the you did see the movie i saw the whole fucking movie because i went we're getting off tangent and we don't have that much time but i went with austin Mm. i went with the the writer and i saw it and he loved it and i was I was like, never take me to that film ever again. Never take to me a film like that ever again. And he was like, he's one of those films I would have seen it multiple times. He would have seen it multiple yeah. times. Yeah. And then every guy I've talked to, 
loves that fucking film. And I'm like, why? Because you guys have hate each other? We're like, what's the deal here? Why do you guys hate? And it's like, it's like, yeah, it's about ugliness. It's like, it's about like hitting the mundane, but also the hiddenness in the mundane. Darkness is thought of like as a more artistic, meaningful, respectable characteristic yeah. for a movie to have. Like something bright and sunshiny is like, it's not serious. It's not film. It's not film. It's not something men that would like to go see. Like Magic Might is a good writing. Absolutely not. But it's aesthetically pleasing. There is something, there's people having non-toxic male friendships. No one's cutting off their fucking fingers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, huge, huge upside for that movie. I mean, I just don't know why that's not considered film, even though maybe because writing isn't good enough. But like, that's still not, to me, I'm like, there's other make, they have sexy dancing. What, I mean, like, what is a film? Like, you know, I didn't what is a film? I feel like there's so many better examples than Magic Mike. Not to say that's not a good movie, but there are so many examples of movies that have good writing. Mean Girls, yeah. Legally Blonde. Or like, I don't, yeah, whatever. There's so many. The, I mean, those are all very aesthetically bright and colorful and they're really well, they're actually good movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say arguably, like written, amazing, especially Mean Girls. And yeah, they're just not seen as, they're not taken seriously by tastemakers. I think they are now because I think women have been fighting for those films to be seen, but still not not with the bros that I hang out with. Okay, so we've talked about some quantitative data behind the phenomenon of chromophobia. We've talked about some really heady ass stuff. A lot of people getting flowery as fuck talking about it. But, um, you know, I just want to know what the internet is saying. And what the internet is saying about this whole chromophobia thing is that one of our main perpetrators are called beige moms. Have you ever heard of a beige mom? Of course I have, yeah. I've seen sad beige, is it sad beige babies, I think it is, or beige, sad baby, sad beige. Sad beige official is an account. Yeah, and it is really sad and very beige. (laughs) Yeah, it's all about like children's toys and like Warner Herzog, basically like, okay, that account was started by Haley DeRoche, who described sad beige as anything neutral toned that has the joy siphoned out of it. And essentially, like, there's this newsletter about mom influencing, and it said that, like, mom, it's called Mothers Under the Influence, and it's written by Catherine Jeezer Morton. And, and one of the things they say is that mom influencers are encouraged to decorate their homes in beige because then the products that they're advertising pop more, like, in comparison, like, on Instagram, which is, like, I guess not surprising, but it is sad to me. And the creator of Sad Beige Official, Haley DeRoche, she talks about how like she was shopping for t- for toys for her, some, her kid, like stacking cups. And like all of these ads show these babies playing with stacking cups that are in like grayscale. And as a beige mom herself, she was like WTF. She's kind of like making fun of herself, it sounds like. Yeah, but also she is a sad beige mom. That's sad. It is sad. And like, well, she talked about how like she has kids and she allows primary colored toys into her house. And like she did let her son have a Mario themed birthday party, but she like really carefully planned out the rest of the color palette to make sure to like rein in the Mario colors, which I'm like, I feel like if you've gone Mario themed colors, like there's no... There's no reigning in. Also, psychotic to me. Yeah. Like, like let the kid have a Mario themed birthday. It isn't about you for one. I know. I mean, I do worry about kids ruining the aesthetic of my house, even though some people like my dad call my house, quote unquote, interesting. (laughs) (laughs) I would call his house interesting. I've been inside of it. His house is frightening. Yeah. I would I would look in and be like, (laughs) interesting. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. 
um like i do worry about a kid ruining the aesthetic of my house but also this is a birthday party it's one day one day yeah just let there be some mario napkins in your house yeah but they're gonna be there forever the mario napkins yeah i'm joking oh i mean because <laughs> i'm like yeah i would save them in my drawer and like <laughs> yeah, never yeah, throw I, them away <laughs> exactly I was like, I saw this mom online who does this thing where her she like has her kids make art and then she'll put it on the walls. You know, like parents do that. They put their kids art on their walls, but that she like really carefully chooses the color palette and like we'll have like more of this color and then like less of this color to like really try so that whatever they paint. Yeah, I mean, I get that. It's the primary colors that I'm like, ooh, we're not boss house. We're not, ba- we're not, we're not. Come on, kids, idiots. We're- <laughs> <laughs> you ever heard of jewel tone losers? <laughs> I want to see pastels with some, I don't know, yeah. hints of value. But yeah, so there's like this group of momfluencers that it's like their homes are decorated beige, their kids wear beige clothes, they play with beige toys, like wooden, you know, no paint on the toys. I, and it's just this weird kind of epidemic. And in the article, they talk about Kim Kardashian's line of monochromatic garments as being like partially responsible for the trend of, I, of neutral tones. I totally get mad and disagree with that completely because Kanye Ye's was, his line was the big oatmeal monochromatic. And then she created whatever it, that... that line is called skims yeah which is actually about body conforming it's not even really a line so what the fuck line is she talking about yeah i don't know <laughs> I'm, I'm like do your research well does kim but kim sells things other than body con right no but like she's, i'm sure she has she's touched everything some even credit cards but like her leggings and stuff like you would wear them that, that was ye that was his line yeah what skims then Skims is the body c- contouring thing. This is why I'm like, this article needs to do a little bit of research. Uh, okay, but they have like dresses and shit. Skims does. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But it's still like done after ye and like, and that's like a more recent thing. Like her whole thing is she doesn't do a runway. Yeah. She doesn't have a line line. Yeah. And so you're, you were saying that like when people, credit kim for like inspiring all these trends that it's like it's not giving credit to yeezy well i hate all of it anyways this is why i don't want to be defending anybody in this context but i want you to get it right because it does feel racist to some degree but even though he's ah there's so much nuance to this conversation it scares the stylist routinely does not get credit which is a problem yeah but it's also like yeah because they dress the body that's like the iconic person you know like the person really does like make the look memorable like that's why we know it because it's like on them yeah and well i think it's well documented and well known if you watch any of keeping up with the kardashian kanye west does this whole cleansing of kardashians like kim's clothes mm. like gets rid of all her clothes and he's like i'm dressing you like that is like a that episode. you see that on the show yeah and because she used to wear like wrap dresses and high heels you know that and she wasn't and so like I don't know why we're even acting like Kim had any. She's never really had an opinion about her aesthetic until now. And she even, they even now with her new Kardashian, peep, like keeping up with the Kardashians, they ask her, so what's your style going to be like? And she's like, honestly, I don't know. Because she now is making the shots, quote unquote. Right. So like, don't give Kim any credit for being an influencer of any well, kind. I guess all I'm saying is that like, you don't have to be the one who thought of it. Like, I'm not saying that like she did anything or that I think she... Yeah, yeah, I'm not saying you're saying anything. Part of me wants to go back and watch that episode, and part of me is like, it's too painful. 
You, I mean, I remember being like, what's happening? It was crazy. I mean, it was kind of crazy because you're just like, finally, it, it is whatever. It's kind of a cultural shift because it was a thing where you were as they were using him as her benefit and we all knew it. He's like infusing her with his creative energy. Yeah. And gaining into that access to the world that she had been so dying to be a part of. Right. Because you and like you were saying, she she only ever got into the Met Gala because of him. Yeah. And now and on the cover of Vogue because of him, it had to be a couple, the first wedding one. And then now she's on Vogue all the time, it feels like. And so do you think Kanye then inspired the minimalism we saw in like the 2010s? Absolutely. I mean, Anna Wintour didn't like it, which I think is funny. She she didn't like their Someone aesthetic. asked her about Kanye's because he was like, he thought Anna and him were tight or whatever, Grace, or at least Grace Covington. He was in the fashion world. He was taken and respected and taken seriously by the wealthy elite. Okay, let's just remember that. But Anna Wintour was asked about his line in like 2010 or 2012. And she was like, ask somebody else. That was her response. Oh, wow. But like his oatmeal color minimalism look was definitely what influenced the culture to dress that way. And now it's such a trend. I look at all these like Christian influencer babes that have like, I don't know, beige like sports bra and um, high-waisted leggings in their beige white home that's like trying to look like Kim Kardashian's home. And I'm like, that is so a trend, baby. We're out of it now. We've moved on. Dude, the gray flooring that everyone's doing right now. I don't know what you're talking about. I I mostly just see it on Zillow. Oh, yeah. That's the thing. That's the other thing they do for architecture, especially when people are renting out houses. They don't want anybody to like paint inside their houses because it's harder to sell or harder to get people moving. It's not true. It's actually not true. I don't know why we think that. People like moving into things that are colorful and fun. Like I don't, I would, I would love that. Yeah. I mean, we're not most people. I don't know. Chrissy, she decorates her one house she decorated this one place that was having a hard time renting yeah and then the moment they they were like bringing in renters after she decorated it immediately was taken they loved it so i don't know i feel like people do yeah they yeah. just don't have any style so they don't know what to do people don't like feeling like they're they could be wrong and with color there's like so many ways to be wrong like you know like mixing them together wrong like i don't know wearing the color that doesn't suit you well it just feels like it feels unsafe to people yeah i mean that's one way to look at it. But there's also a purity complex. Yeah. And that's definitely what Kanye thought with his color. With them, it was like this whole minimalism thing, like the way they decorate their home, like the colors that they were wearing. And we've talked about minimalism before on the podcast and how it like is a rejection of ornamentation and how ornamentation is this, is like an expression of color. And so I went on a little Wikipedia journey because I wanted to like read about different meanings that minimalism has had over time. They talk about minimalism as in Zen, as in traditional Japanese design. They talk about the 1980s minimalism in Japan as being a reaction to the very fast industrialization that happened there. At that time, they talk about the European roots of minimalism within Bauhaus, which started with a German art school that went, went from 1919 to 1933. And it combined crafts and the fine arts. The school became famous for its approach to design which attempted to unify individual artistic vision with the principles of mass production and emphasis on function, which like is interesting because it was like very capitalism forward or very like about mass production, but it was like they wanted to be like the Ikea of Germany, basically. Yeah. But you said things were colorful when you were there. Okay. So the Bauhaus Museum, it was interesting because it is about, it is about form and making form interesting 
And it's about making form, like, there there being, like, things can be focused on practicality. Things can, but also they can create this, an interesting form with that, too. So Mm -hmm. you really see them kind of streamline and make, it did look like a better version of Ikea. Really? Absolutely. But they had mostly the primary colors that were, that was very, what, interesting. it was, like, things were painted, you know, like, kind of like Ikea style, you know what I mean? Like, but, like little more colorful things are like yellow with a metal thing and you could take it apart you know what i mean like yeah i'm not you know metal part with yellow you got it and it just imagine anything you know made all kind of cool in mid-century i felt like it was mid-century but i don't know if it was during that time period well it started in 1919 so it probably i mean it went beyond then you know like that the school was the first thing and then the movement came out of it and Um, but the architecture is a little different the architecture actually of Bajas is more stale and confining, which is weird. Yeah. I don't know why, where we got from like objects to architecture and why they kind of different from, I remember that in the museum too, because it's like a video of the architecture and the architecture, I was like, ew, not a vibe. Yeah. I was feeling everything else though. What's up? Yeah. That's it's really hard for architects to have fun. Turns out. Totally. Because men. I mean, check out Dank Lloyd Wright at Instagram. It's hilarious if you want to get the hot, hot piping tea of architecture meme-wise. So then there's also like post-World War II minimalism within American visual arts in the 1960s, early 1970s, which is often interpreted as a reaction against abstract expressionism and modernism. Then we have the minimalism within the fashion world in the 90s, which was a reaction to the ostentatiousness and excess of the 1980s. We have Helmut Lang, for example, a minimalist designer during that time who drew from architecture. Basically, you had a lot of clothes and neutrals, but it was also like minimalist in terms of like cut and like ornamentation, essentially. It was just very simple clothing. And so like there's a cyclical nature to this, especially within fashion where like you could have a 10 year trend cycle where you see like a lot of color in the 60s, muted colors in the 70s, bright and vibrant in the 80s and then like muted in the 90s, Um, vibrant Y2K and then 2010 Kardashian minimalism. So it's like minimalism can be a lot of different things and it's happened at a lot of different times. But I think overall there's like this association with efficiency and capitalism. Like we're often when we're being minimalist, we're thinking about how fast something can be produced and embellishments hinder that. Like anything that is whatever, anything that's difficult to make is like not going to be able to be produced fast. So Whereas ornamentation is an expression of culture, minimalism is like, no, like, let's not express culture. Let's just do this as quickly as we can. And similarly, within capitalism, we are encouraged to dress that way because anything else shows that we have an interest outside of working. Anything else like slows us down. Like famously, Steve Jobs always wore turtlenecks. Mark Zuckerberg was famous for like saying that he wore the same thing every day so that he didn't have to make as many decisions. Like he wanted to save his brain power for more important things, aka radicalizing people by showing them inflammatory political posts and making everyone depressed by showing them photos of people they met in undergrad leading perfect lives. But basically, it's like professional dress codes are are meant to like make it so that we just get up in the morning, we go to work, we don't think about like expressing ourselves or like, and it's the whole thing of like, it, it seeming like a cosmetic superfluous thing. Anyway, I read a paper called Dress in the Female Professional, a case study of working women by Anne Rippon, Harriet Short, 
and Samantha Warren. And they talk about this magazine that came out mid 1980s called Working Woman. Essentially, women were transitioning into the workplace and they like needed to be told how to dress. Like it's something we take for granted that like we know how to we're supposed to dress in certain situations. But when you have bigger, big cultural shifts like that, people do need to know how to dress. I mean, like there are women that were like voted into office in the 70s for the first time. Like that was a big shift too. And women were like, I'm going to breastfeed while we're doing this. That happened? Yeah. Women on the floor, like at the house, would be like breastfeeding openly. That would not happen now. Um, So it's almost digressed in a sense of. And I'm not saying that like we need things to tell us how to dress inherently, but it's like culturally we struggle. People do struggle and are confused if they don't uh, know what they should wear. And these magazines are basically teaching women how to like dress like men, but like where you could still tell they were a woman and like telling them how to, you know, wear like suits and shoulder pads and like glasses. There was a whole thing about accessories where it's like you need a briefcase, you can wear glasses. And they learn to wear like dark colors like men like there's an association of men with dark suits since the, since the victorian era and this article uses the term chromophobia and says that it still operates in many large organizations where black navy and charcoal gray are considered suitable for business wear color in contrast is a province of women so basically we're just like seeing it come full circle where we have this association of color with women we have an association of lack of color minimalism with capitalism and then we have these publications that literally taught women how to be successful in the workplace by dressing like men and not wearing color yeah and being boring and that's that's like i guess the what we call french colonialism they're trying to make us become men right. i also not to i don't know make light of that because it's fucked up um but it, that's i don't think we are making light of it because it's pretty crazy how we're what we're expected to wear and how again it's all about control and it's weird and i had a point but i lost it yeah and these writers were talking about how like essentially during this time period there was an opportunity to like change what workwear, what professional wear looked like there was this like right pivotal moment where magazines could have told them anything but and and in a weird way it like had a lot of sway on them at that at that point but it was yeah but men were never going to give up it what it's like probably wasn't men writing these things oh yeah it was what you think men were writing? have you watched mad men they're literally writing like how did how did men come men came up with women's sizes yeah men were absolutely fully in control of this but like this was like a vogue-esque publication yeah but that had i'm sure a man had a, a handle on that how that narrative was done yeah either way it was like the the wills of patriarchy were being done right so to break away from that would mean to destabilize the structure that's why fashion is so empowering like yes they had a moment in time where they could have gone a completely different direction but they were still in such a patriarchal system therefore that was never going to happen right well and it's like when you're when your feminism is about succeeding at capitalism like it's never going to truly free you yeah i think about the word freedom a lot just in the sense that nina Simone has a really really good interview about it because she's like what is freedom like really and i'm like yeah especially when we can't show it through clothing like the fact that wearing bright blue eyeshadow at work would make me feel like i'm saying something about myself that would either be i would but i'd either be considered considered shallow or on drugs or stupid like you spent too much time thinking about things that weren't smart and it's like that's why I get so mad at Socialist Alternative for not letting me in your group, you assholes. I know. I really hope we get a listener from them at some point. 
I think there just needs to be some reflection on, on the things that we say about fashion. I think there just needs to be a deeper thought or at least you could, I mean, like, that's the thing. I'm just like, think a little bit. We have told not to think about because we think it's shallow and pointless. So we're, t- we're told to stop at the word fashion. Looking deeper, which everybody should for a second on most things, have a little bit of reflection on it. You'll see that obviously you're mistaken on that. There is there is context within why you've been provided. We provided these things for a reason. And we have to always think, where did that come from, actually? Whose mouth actually said those things? Was it Plato? Because <laughs> I feel like did it was Plato. Plato start this rumor? I feel like it was Aristotle, maybe, too. I don't know. Yeah. Not Jesus, though. Probably Jesus. No, Jesus was down. Dude, forget. Jesus probably loved color. Yeah, I, I, hope, I hope so. He was a carpenter. Do you think he, they had paint back then where they could paint up stuff? Do we don't, think- I wish he had. You know, why doesn't the Bible have more descriptions of his carpentry? Was he even good? Oh, interesting. Yeah. The, they're like, so Jesus was building a birdhouse. <laughs> <laughs> but then this whore came by and she needed help. <laughs> and then that started, his, started off everything. Yeah, I'm just like, can you not maybe like leave notes on like how to build a home Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Right. There's like some the DIY manuals in the back of the yeah. Bible. Yeah, that would be cool. Like how magazines used to have sewing patterns. I want to see what he was building. It could, say, it could say a lot about him. Dude, if you found like a boat that Jesus had made, I feel like it would blow the world up for people First to like off, see that. First off, I don't think he was ever that talented. Sorry, Jesus. Like, but did he make a living that way? Obviously not. He was poor, wasn't he? Wasn't he always poor? That was his whole thing. Because he was going around. Okay. I Sounds like, like a bum to me. I feel like he was underemployed. Yeah. He was just going around talking to people. He wouldn't <laughs> even have a job. Uh, jobless fucking socialist. Yeah. I, I mean. He was couch surfing. <laughs> <laughs> I would honestly never probably date a Jesus. If there was a reincarnation of Jesus and he was like the similar Jesus that's in the Bible, which is like, you know, a, quote unquote socialist with no job I'd be like honey I'm a classist I guess because you need shoes because I assume he doesn't and you need to cut that hair and you need to make money for mama because I just I don't care about your shit yeah I don't know if Jesus came to you and he was like and he was like Jesus but you were like he had to date him I mean, at my 32-year-old self, no. 25, for sure. For sure. Go out and party with Jesus. For sure. But I guess time is everything. It's. I just hate, you know, I just hate to admit where I found myself where I'm like, okay, uh, what do you make? Okay. Oh, yeah. All right. So we could buy a house together if we, oh, yeah, seven years. Okay. <laughs> that is, yeah, that is exactly how, like, Hope Hope's like, okay, we got to save this amount of money. We're going to cancel the Washington Post plan. If, it's to not get there, even true. Dude. I like don't have, <laughs> I don't have any strategy to it at all. I have no planning whatsoever. I'm just like, okay, that's why I like don't spend money because I'm like, I can't do any math. I just know. You're just like, if I spend money, that's going to be too much money. Right. That, right. that was the old hope. That was the old hope. The new hope buys like, really expensive you found out you were rich at estate sales yeah i was like oh my gosh dual income no kids lifestyle this is what happens when hope does math though she did some math (laughs) and she she saw some numbers i was like wait a second are you kidding me i can buy a couch yeah dude it's a it's a whole i get it i bet i don't because i love spending money it feels really good sometimes um anyway I love spending money on colorful shit. Yeah, buy buy colorful stuff. Make your house look pretty. If you want to, feng shui says bring the light in. 
not the white light, you know, like fun light. Um, and you can bring the rainbow in with that. It's like, you know, sun catchers. That's part of the feng shui aspect of it. And I think of color, you know, prisms, bring in that light, capture that light and make a rainbow. Yeah. If you're on Facebook Marketplace and you see something you like and then you, it, the title says that it's for kids, you know, you can still get it. Dude, you should definitely you get, still it. get it. I Yeah. Kristen Bateman. Uh, I feel like that's her whole thing. I can't remember who that is. She is a writer and as a fashion writer and oh. also a fashionista and has oh, a right, right, right. shop. But her whole thing is, is like kid core, raver kid core. And it's i fucking obsessed with it. And yeah, forever. Like she had like a, what was it? A, a small, I loved this. And I was like, how can I make this work at, at work? I just want to wear it at work. But I also don't want anybody to talk to me. So I don't want that. But she had not an iPod. Remember those tiny, I guess it was an iPod. Oh, an iPod shuffle? Yeah, and she had it as a clip. Oh, yeah, I've seen that. That was like a thing. That was she a probably thing. started it, huh? Definitely. Obsessed. Obsessed with that. That's that's fun. Yeah, it's so fun. Start putting personal objects around your house on your head, please. Especially if it's nostalgia. We, we, love- we both just started frantically <laughs> looking around the room. I was like, honestly, if you made a little crown out of your sewing stuff, I would. that would be iconic. Yeah. With like strings, maybe. maybe. Some ribbons for sure. Yeah. And you would have to, we go dancing, people would definitely compliment you. You know what I was thinking? Okay, should we close out? Yeah, but what were you thinking? I was thinking at one of our events, we should have a rag, like a huge loom and have a rag rug that people can just like add to. Oh, fun. Like maybe like a big loom to where like people had to be on a ladder, but it was safe somehow. <laughs> We, like, have people on a climbing rope. <laughs> no, make it unsafe. We need to make things a little bit more scary. Yeah, on someone else's dime. Uh, if they fall, I'm saying on you, honey. I, I'm, we're not responsible just because it's on our property. That's not how that works. Unless I push them. <laughs> well, okay, good to know. Uh, this if you is- get hurt, you get hurt, baby. Like, Yeah, I didn't think that that's how things worked around here. I thought it was like, you slip on my banana peel, too bad for me. Too bad. If No, no way. Especially with our friends. No one has the money for a lawyer like that. As long <laughs> as you don't hang out with rich people. Well, this is going to be like a public event, but. Um, so no rich people allowed, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> we can't stop ourselves. Okay, rate us five stars, please. Um, we you- know you love us. You made it this far. Please, just if you don't give us five stars, it's basically like slapping us in the face. Um, or worse, honestly. Whatever you think is bad, that's what you're doing to us. I mean, if it's a four star, how dare you? Four star is rude. No, rude. four star is like no. You don't. think you're you think you you take yourself too seriously because you're like, no. is it a five? Is it? Can I really give it a five? Yeah, at three and below, you're dead in the heart. Yeah, you are dead in the heart. I mean, is Crystal Delia still got a podcast? I think he's probably in his 4.8 or something. Who's that? He is the creepiest of creeps that, like, just got away with, like, being an underage uh, sex trafficker, um, essentially. Um, but he's a comedian that does sell out shows to this day. Kind of like a Louis C.K. that we know of. But he also has a podcast. And Yeah, Chris Harrison's podcast has, like, really good reviews. And it's like he's – I don't think he has a very important perspective to share. I and mean, his podcast is just him. Talk. It's like he doesn't even read books, you guys. He we, doesn't. We read books, not always all the way through. Yeah. But we at least get a chapter Dude, done. Skimming is what you learn how to do in grad school. We have master's degree in skimming. It's like what they literally teach you. That's literally what a professor told you to do. Don't read the whole book when you can just skim it. 
But that's academia. Good fiction or something for sure. But we don't read fiction. No. We don't have time for fiction. That's silliness. I do want to read Snimini Lickett. Okay, we're going over. We're okay. talking to us. All right. I love you. I love you too. Bye. Bye.